would encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn in the book of First Peter, chapter 2. Uh, we'll be focusing this morning on verses 18 through 25 as we continue through this study of First Peter. He said in the first service, I don't know about you, but this study as we've gone through this book has been both an encouragement and a challenge for me. It's an encouragement to my soul just as we have looked at the magnificence of what we have in Christ Jesus and what, what has been done on our behalf by God. And then a challenge as well because Peter, especially starting last week, the last couple of weeks, starts to meddle in our lives a little bit and uh, talk about some specific examples in which the way we are to conduct ourselves. And we kind of pick up that theme again today as we look at this book. So I'm going to read and we'll pray, ask the Lord's help today, and then long to hear from him from his word. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we approach now the proclamation of your word, as you speak to us from your word, Father, we ask for your help ask for your help that we would hear well, we would understand, and Father, that by the working of your Spirit, um, you would transform us even today, transform our thinking, transform our actions, uh, transform our inclinations. Uh, Father, that we would glorify you in all that we do, glorify you in all that we think, and that much would be made of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I had what I would have considered my dream job. I loved it. I looked forward to going to work. And, of course, you know, as with any job, it's got sort of the drawbacks. I mean, no job is completely perfect. But overall, I would say it was my my dream job. Loved it, worked hard, went every week, every day, and put all my effort into it. And was doing that for several years. On one particular occasion... The one of the, the higher supervisors came into my office and asked, can we meet? Now, not being the sharpest knife in the drawer, but not being the dullest either, usually when this happens, what follows is not good. And my inclinations were correct. The supervisor said to me, well, we're going to move you out of your job and you have about a month till that takes place. So get your stuff wrapped up, and that'll be that. And I was, to be honest, 
Number one, dumbfounded. It's like, what in the world? There was no, there was nothing that I had done, or at least, you know, from a, from a position where I had received any sort of negative employee reviews or anything like that. I was mad because I loved this job and it was just sort of out of the blue. And so I went as, as this supervisor left and I went and talked to my immediate supervisor. And he and I had worked closely together for a number of years and had developed a good friendship. And I told him, I said, you know, I, I said, I don't know what's going on here. Like this, this is just weird. And, and I don't get it. You know, and I was sort of venting my spleen, uh, to him. And, and he was equally, equally as dumbfounded. He, he says, yeah, I, I, that just, that just really seems weird. I, I don't, I don't get what, what's going on. And about six months later, it came to be known that my immediate supervisor, who I would have also categorized as my friend, having worked together, had gone to the higher supervisors and essentially badmouthed me and my performance in my job, not because it was true, uh, but because he had other intentions in mind. And so the, his, his sort of backdoor dealings, dealing with me in a nefarious way had led to me being let go from that particular position in my job. And I was, number one, felt the sting of betrayal for sure, but at the same time was really, really mad. Because I love that job. And, 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 and the supervisor had, had been instrumental in me losing it. And so a person had, shortly after all this, this, kind of came out person asked me, well, if you ever saw him again, what would you do? I don't recommend this following phrase when this happens to you or if anything, but my immediate unsanctified response and what flew out of my mouth was I would punch him square in the face. And I thought about that as it was coming out of my mouth. Is that really what God would have you do? I was quickly answered with no. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you have been wrongfully treated? Treated unjustly? Going through a particular situation where you say to yourself, I don't deserve what's happening. I haven't done anything wrong, and I don't deserve this. It's kind of where we pick up today in First Peter. There are places and there are situations that we find ourselves in as we live in exiles in this world. And Peter wants to address those situations as he does the original hearers. This idea of exile has been a theme that's continued throughout the book of 1 Peter, that we belong by virtue of the fact that we have been born again to uh, God's kingdom, we have been brought into God's kingdom. We have been called out of darkness into light. We have, by virtue of the work of God, we have been brought into His kingdom, but we live in this world. Thus we are exiles, we are strangers, we are aliens, we are foreigners, uh, as we live our lives in this world. And the church itself, the church and, and us as Christians in this world are an embassy, if you will, of the kingdom that we belong to, the heavenly kingdom to which we belong. And you remember Peter started sort of a new section in his book. Uh, we looked at this a few weeks ago. 
beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, he, he starts talking about, he had gone through chapter 1 and, and much of chapter 2 talking about our position, who we are uh, in Christ, what has been given to us, the great salvation that we have, the inheritance that we long for, the hope that we have, the anticipation of the resurrection, the anticipation of the new creation, the anticipation of the return of Christ, all of those things. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, he, 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 he starts shifting gears and he starts talking about our conduct as Christians, as exiles, living in this world. In general, you remember in, 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 in verse 11 through 12, he talked about just generally speaking that you are to have good conduct amongst unbelievers. And you remember that that, that good conduct that we, we have amongst unbelievers is, has sort of a witnessing component to it. It testifies to Jesus. It testifies to the, what, we have, uh, what we have experienced, who we are. And ultimately, in that sense, we see that people see our conduct, have opportunity to talk about Christ and talk about the gospel. And as Peter rounds out that section, he says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That they would be there with us. Those who were once unbelievers now brought into the kingdom of God just like we were. And that somehow our good, our good deeds, our good works... Um, testify to the transforming power of Christ and the gospel. And then beginning in verse 13, he, he starts to address specific situations. We talked about last week how we are to think about and conduct ourselves with regards to the civil government. And now, he goes and starts meddling a little bit more. And he starts talking about how we are to comport ourselves with regards to those in superior positions to us. Instinctually, we, we may think being free in Christ and, and um, having freedom in Christ and, and by virtue of the, the country, the, the, the social structure that we live in, that we have some inherent right or even an inherent responsibility to exercise our freedom by resisting and reviling those who are in superior positions who might treat us unjustly. In other words, we get to choose, in our thinking, to whom and to what we will subject ourselves. It's that that rugged individualism of our culture. It's as the great prophet Frank Sinatra said, I did it my way. It's okay to laugh, I promise. But how do we respond? What... How do we respond, or how are we to conduct ourselves toward our superiors? And that's the question we're looking at today. So let's see what God's Word says about this. We're going to answer three questions as we move through this, and then kind of put a, put a bow on it as we get, get toward the end. So the first question that I want us to answer from this text is, what must our conduct be? What must our conduct be? And that's answered in verses 18 through 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. To speak in general terms, our conduct must be one of subjection or one of submission to those who are in authority. And a little bit about this, this term servant here. Some translations you have may say slaves, but literally it's, it's house servants. And we must not um, equate this 
with what we understand the servant-master or slave-master relationship is uh, from our own history. Roman, Roman servants or Roman slaves, were, it was a much different, or a, a, a different enterprise. cannot be fully equated to what we are um, accustomed to, to thinking about. Mistreatment of servants in Roman culture uh, was rare, although it did occur. It was not based on race. Generally, servants were well treated. They were they were not simply just unskilled workers either. They were they were oftentimes managers or or household uh, overseers. They could be trained in certain professions, like a physician. So they were not completely unskilled. They they were paid for their service, and eventually could even purchase their freedom uh, at some point. Oftentimes, people how how people came to be in this position of servitude. It could have been through uh, wars, as they were as as conquests happened. Uh, the captives were brought back, and and they would serve as servants if they were they could be born into into servitude. Uh, if the parents were servants, children uh, who were born into that would become servants as well. They could enter it because of economic hardship. If if something happened. Uh, where they they were in economic hardship, people could sell themselves into servanthood uh, and uh, ease that economic hardship. So there is, there is components of this that there were there was both a voluntary entrance and an involuntary entrance into this. One writer defined it this way: that it was semi-permanent employment without legal or economic freedom. That's that's what we're dealing with here. So there's not this one-to-one correspondence with how we think about slavery or servitude. Uh, in from our history. So what it's talking about here is that, in generally speaking, it's how we conduct ourselves toward those who are in superior positions or have a legitimate authority over us, a, a, a legitimate authority claim over us, and it applies to everyone at some level. This really actually becomes a paradigm for how we live our lives as Christians. So we are to be subject to or submit to those who are our superiors. Now, why is this even, why is this even an issue? Because in, in the Greco-Roman culture, as, as, as Peter has talked about the, your position in Christ, that you have been um, set free, chapter 2, verse 16, that you, that you have been ransomed from your previous feudal ways, chapter 1, verse 18, the temptation would be to see freedom as a excuse, an excuse for subversion or even outright rebellion against those who are in positions of authority. To understand that we are free gives us the opportunity to actually overstep conducting ourselves with goodness toward unbelievers. And we must not do that. So what does it mean when we think about being subject? It's our, our, our heart seeks to be underneath those who are superiors, not free from them. Not to get out from underneath authority uh, at the, as using our freedom in Christ as an excuse. And so Peter says here, be subject to your masters. Be subject to those who are in authority over you with all respect. And literally, it's, it's an unfortunate translation, literally it's in fear. 
We are to be subject to those uh, who are in positions of authority, our superiors, in fear. Not in fear of our superiors, but where in, in Peter, think previous verse, did we, who are we to fear? God. We are to fear God. And so we, how we conduct ourselves, how we, how we subject ourselves or submit ourselves to those who are in positions of authority is in fear of God. It's in reverence to God. We behave in, in those relationships to those who are in superior positions as a matter of reflecting our worship and our reverence for God. These two are integrally connected. Even as he goes on here, and we'll come back to this, even as he goes on here, verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, thinking about God. So how we conduct ourselves toward those who are superiors is in reverence to God. It flow, we subject ourselves to those who are in superior positions as it reflects that reverence. Okay. We can, we can kind of go along with that. But Peter kind of starts stepping on toes a little bit more now. So if we're, if we're to subject ourselves to those who are in superior positions to us, in fear of God, certainly, it's only the good ones. The ones we agree with. The ones we like. But, it's not really what Peter says, is it? He says, uh, subject yourself to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So despite the character of those who are in positions of authority over us, that we are to subject ourselves, we are to submit despite their character. Not only to the good and the Gentile, but also to the unjust. We don't get an out because someone who has that position of authority is, has a character that we may not agree with. Conducts themselves in a manner that we may not condone. That doesn't keep with God's Word. Peter says you still, you still need to be submissive. You still need to subject yourself. And here's where we start pushing back. Because, well, wait a second. Because we start thinking about the exceptions. We start thinking about the, yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about that? We don't argue for the rule based on the exception. Yes, there are places when someone who is in legitimate authority over you may ask you or tell you to do something that God's Word forbids, or forbid you from doing something that God word, God's Word prescribes. Yes, there are those exceptions. But that is not what Peter's focusing on. And that's oftentimes what we try to focus on. The what about this? What about that? And then argue back and say, well, if, if, if they're going to be like that, then I'm not going to submit, period. We don't submit to those things that God's Word forbids, or submit to those Resisting those things that God's Word prescribes. For sure. God's the higher authority. 
But what Peter is saying is just because the one who is in position of authority over you may be a dastardly person does not give you the excuse to say, I'm out. The kind of person doesn't matter. The character doesn't matter in regards to how we comport ourselves. We keep doing good. They can be good, they can be gentle, or they can be unjust, or any point in between. And yet we must still subject ourselves. Okay, okay. We get the character part. But what about when it gets hard? And we experience adversity. Certainly then. Certainly then. Keep reading. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for what you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Here God's word gets even more pointed. Even in the midst of experiencing adversity and injustice in the midst of In this, we subject ourselves to superiors. Notice how verse 19 and 20 begin and end in similar fashion. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. And then in verse 20, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, what Peter's drawing our attention to, he sort of uses this as a a set of bookends. That understanding that when you suffer unjustly, not because you've done something wrong, not because you've sinned, and you're experiencing the consequences of that, not because you've broken some law and are experiencing the consequences of that, but when you are living righteously, when you are doing good, and in the midst of doing good, in subjection to those who are in authority over you, you are mistreated? This is pleasing to God. You're going to find out why in a second. But understand, because this is, this is sort of the, the framework that we can often get into, that if something is happening in my life that is adverse, if I am experiencing some sort of injustice, clearly the immediate thing I think of was God must be mad at me and he's beaten me down with a holy two by four. No! We're going to come back to this and there, you'll understand this in a, in a little bit more. But understand that in the context of doing good, not ill, And when you are treated unjustly, it's pleasing to God. And you'll see why. You'll see why. So we must conduct ourselves according to God's Word, and in so doing, we conduct ourselves in submission to our superiors, in service to God, even when we experience Injustice, even when we experience being treated unjustly or ill. That's the answer to the question, what must our conduct be? But the passage doesn't stop there. It, it, it gets better. And as you're going to see, you're going to see this. Peter sort of starts with the thing that's the, you know, kind of makes us shrivel up. And you know, like, ugh. Like we just, you know, downed a bottle of prune juice. Like, ugh. That's rough. But he starts 
building on it and lifting our gaze elsewhere. The second question I want us to answer is, what is the paradigm? What's the pattern? We see that in verses 21 through 23. So, subject yourselves to those in authority, in service to God, even when you suffer in unjustly. And the paradigm here is Christ himself. Look at what he writes, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. So he starts out with, to this you have been called. Well, what, what's Peter referring? What is it that we're called to? Is it, is it suffering? Is it suffering unjustly? Yeah, kind of. But we need to understand that and unpack that a little bit. You see, what has Peter already said? We have been called out of darkness into his light. Chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, he talks about the fact that you were born again, called forth by the proclamation of the gospel. And in so doing, we become identified with Jesus. When we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, when we are called forth, when we are born again into the family of God, we are identified with Jesus. And so when Peter then goes on to say, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His footsteps, he's saying Jesus is the paradigm. Jesus is the pattern. He's the example. Now this does not mean what he is talking about here, that we follow the example of Jesus verbatim because Jesus' suffering accomplished stuff. That's what he's going to talk about. However, we need to understand with regards to our suffering, the injustice that we experience at the hands of others here in this world, that Jesus Himself is the paradigm for all of this. Jesus experienced this in His very life. If you remember, go back to John's Gospel, as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, John chapter 15, He's he's giving the disciples some instructions, and not to point out the obvious, but Peter's one of them. And Jesus tells the disciples, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. The servant is not greater than his master. He sets them up that he himself, by virtue of the fact that, that he lived a righteous life, did lots of good things, and he, was, he suffered and was persecuted unjustly, they are going to do the same thing to those who identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to get that in our heads. Because oftentimes what happens is we think we deserve better. We skip the cross and want to go right to the glory. We need to understand the theology of the cross. The cross comes before exaltation. The cross comes before glory. We tend to look straight past the cross and go for the glory. It's interesting in Jesus' temptation, when Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness, the second temptation, He shows Him all the kingdoms of the world. He says, bow down to Me and I'll give you all these things. 
Jesus was already promised all those things. But the temptation is to take the shortcut. The temptation is, don't go to the cross. If you just bow down to me, you'll get all this stuff. Forget about the suffering. Forget about the cross. Take the easy way out. Work smarter, not harder. The temptation is, it would be better for you to sin a little than to suffer at all. And that's the same thing here. That's our thought. It would be much better for us if we just sin a little than to suffer at all. Peter says, no. Look to our Lord. If you're identified with Christ, if you have come to be a part of the family of God and are identified with Christ, despite doing good, you may experience unjust suffering. If you're not going through it now, this at least gives you a heads up. So when it comes, you won't be surprised. But how do we do this? I mean, there, there is some instruction here that, that, that Peter gives us as well, isn't there? He doesn't just stop there and saying you know, that, that, that Christ is the example and kind of coming back to why is this pleasing to God that when we experience unjust suffering, it's pleasing to Him? It's pleasing to Him because it's reflective of His Son. It's us serving His Son and suffering. And He gives us these instructions. Verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. Verse 23. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. In, instead of... So, so the instructions is... Don't, revi- don't return evil for evil. Jesus committed no sin. Peter makes that clear. He was, the, he, was the, he was the lamb without spot or blemish. He suffered not because he did something wrong, but for who he was. He didn't tell a white lie to try to get out of it. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He was blameless. He was sinless. He was the spotless lamb. Instead, when he was reviled, and you think about all the taunts that he took on the way to the cross, as, he's, as he is arrested, as he is taken before various courts, when he goes to Annas' house, to Caiaphas, to Pilate, to Herod, back to Pilate, all those things, he's, he's hit, he's mocked, as he's being, as he's being crucified, they're, 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 they're proclaiming, oh, you saved other people, save yourself, come down from the cross. As he's being led out to the cross and they're putting a crown of thorns on him and, stri- and, and beating him, saying, Hail the King of Jews, mocking him. He did not return evil for evil. When he was beaten, when he was scourged, when he was crucified, he did not threaten either. There's no just you wait. I'm coming back and you're going to be sorry. None of that. He didn't revile. He didn't threaten. 
Quite to the contrary. Quoting from Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before his shears, he was, si- he was silent and did not open his mouth. Christ was that suffering servant that Isaiah looked forward to. Instead of reviling, and ta- instead of taking matters into his own hands, instead of threatening in the midst of unjust persecution, he, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus didn't take those matters into his own hands. He trusted the Father that he would bring him through and he would see the resurrection. Cross always leads to glory. So when we experience unjust suffering at the hands of superiors or anyone for that matter, even while doing good as we are identified with Christ, we do not take matters into our own hands. We don't return threats. We don't revile word for word. We don't do what I wanted to do and said I would do to the person who wronged me, which is punch him square in the face. Instead, we keep doing good. We don't stop doing good, even when we experience unjust treatment. We believe that God is faithful, and we believe that God is just, and He'll do the right thing. We believe that God is sovereign, and even though things seem wildly out of control in our lives, and and we may be experiencing this, we know that ultimately He is in control. We know that God is true, and that His promises are not going to be revoked. That though we experience these things, this side of the new creation, we have the promise of God that we will most certainly have the inheritance that He has promised us by being born again into His family. We have that living hope. And so we keep doing good. And we don't return evil for evil even when we are treated wrongly. Jesus is the paradigm for our submission or our subjection in the midst of unjust suffering. And if we think on this just for a bit, we can feel the weight of this, can't we? We can feel the difficulty of this command. And what it calls us to do, we can feel it. And we think, how in the world am I going to do this? Because this is hard. And they said Peter sort of keeps ratcheting up the greatness of this passage. Starts off with a prune face. And gets to the shiny happy face. And this is where the shiny happy face comes in. Third question. What is the power that we have? Verses 24 through 25. What good is the command that we have if we have no ability to obey it? We do. Because of what... Jesus did. This is the, this is the glorious good news of the gospel, dear friends. 
as, as we get to this, look at what it says. Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. You were straying like sheep and have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Jesus is not only the paradigm for how we respond to unjust suffering at the hands of others, at the hands of our superiors, He is also the one who gives us the power to carry this whole thing out. Peter takes us right back to the cross. He points us to the effectual work of Jesus on the cross. He did something for you. He Himself bore your sins in His body on the tree. Why? Notice the purpose. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the purpose. By His wounds you have been healed. He has done this for you. Direct quotation from Isaiah 53. By, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. And we need to understand what, what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 53 in the context of the book of Isaiah. And we also need to understand how it applies to what Peter's talking about right here. So when, when Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 that you are healed or He healed you by what He did, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah records God's sort of indictment on the nation of Israel for all the, the corrupt things that they were doing. And he says, you, you, you're sick. You're sick from the heel, from the sole of your foot, all the way to the top of your head. And, he, and, and what, that, what, that, what that image gives you is that sin is pervasive in the human experience. There is not one thing or one aspect of the human experience that we have that is not affected by sin. And, in, and for us to be healed, in the context of Isaiah, means that this suffering servant in Isaiah 53, who heals you by his suffering, takes that all away. He does away with your sin. He heals you. And that's exactly what Peter's getting at. You're healed by His cross work. You die to sin. Just as Christ died on that cross, you die to sin so that you can what? Live to righteousness. So by the effectual work of Christ in the cross, by the effectual work of Christ, when, when we have the command here to submit to those who are in positions of authority, even while we are suffering unjustly, looking at Jesus as the paradigm for this whole thing, the power by which we can do this, this glorious thing, is the Gospel. We have been set free. Freedom is being able to have that posture of subjection. Just like Jesus did. Just like Jesus did. We have, were wandering, we were straying like sheep, but now have returned by virtue of what Christ has done to the shepherd and overseers of our souls. Ezekiel 34, God says, I will be the shepherd of my people. I'll raise up somebody like David. He will shepherd my people. God in this Messiah would shepherd His people. Isaiah chapter 40, it says, The Lord is the shepherd. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. 
First Peter chapter 2, reference to the shepherd and overseer, Jesus. We have returned because of what He has done. Jesus isn't only the paradigm, but He's also the power, or gives us the power, by which we accomplish what He calls us to do as living as exiles in this fallen world. We can because He did. You want to circle back to the shepherd for a second. Most popular shepherd passage in the entire Bible. What is it? I promise this isn't a trick question. (laughs) Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. And it's unfortunate, I mean, it's a great passage and, and it's, it's most often uh, read at a funeral, which is a good thing. But in so doing, we almost start reading it like a funeral dirge. The Lord is my shepherd. It's a happy psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. That's how it begins. How does it end? I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's glorious! And here's the thing, as we return to the shepherd and overseers of our souls, the one who is the Lord, and have the promise that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, see what Peter said in chapter 1. What do we know about the shepherd? Between the statement that the Lord is my shepherd and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That the shepherd is with us the whole way. That's how you get from verse 1 to the end of the psalm. And so, dear friends, as we think about what this text tells us, the submission to authorities, even when suffering unjustly in the service of God, we can do it because of what Christ has done and left us as an example. We're not surprised by any of this, but He's also with us in it. And despite what we might experience here, We have the promise of the inheritance of the living hope that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So how do we put it all together? Christ is both the paradigm and the power for submission to superiors in serving God even when we are treated unjustly. That's what Peter's getting at. That Christ... Is both the paradigm and the power for submission to superiors in serving God even when being treated unjustly. And that really becomes a whole pattern for the Christian life, doesn't it? And in our identity with Jesus, we will experience injustice. Injustice. We will suffer wrongly simply by identifying with Jesus. And what we must come to grips with, that He is both the paradigm and the power for going through those things in our service to God, even when we experience those unjust things. Let's pray. Father, though Your Word can take a direct shot at our lives and challenge us It is also a glorious word. A glorious word 
because it causes us to focus on Christ and less upon ourselves. And so we are thankful and we are grateful and we are joyful for what we have in Him and for the being identified with Him and being His and being a part of your family. So Father, forgive us for those times where we turn inward and taking our eyes off Christ. Help us in those things that we may serve You well even when we experience sufferings and persecution. Thank You for the truthfulness of Your Word and its clarity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.